Start the week with Unmade. Setting the agenda for the week in media and marketing. Today, the hot topics from our AI conference, Humane. We'll be bringing you an extract from our session on how AI is being used to create content. Plus today's breaking news headlines. Unmade. It's Monday, July 17. I'm A Beauty and hello, Tim Burrows and Sedja Alzadi. How are you both? Hey, Abe. Tickety-boo. Lovely to be back in Tasmania. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are we going, Sydney, Sedja? Brilliant, as usual, in Harbour City. Uh, Tim, you're back in Tasmania after your jaunt to uh, the UK and uh, via Sydney and Humane. You're back in Tasmania now. Finally, yes. Uh, it turns out that the winter didn't end in the month or so that I was away, so it has been a shock to the system to get back into the rain. But um, but yes, lovely to be uh, lovely back to be back in my uh, back in my home time zone um, after gosh, a British summer. I miss it, Abe. I miss this time last week. I was I was watching Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel in Hyde Park, and it wasn't getting dark till ten p.m. Now it's not getting light till ten a.m. <laughs> Sedja, I saw you at Humane. How were your last few days? How have you recovered? Oh well, uh, I hit the ground running the, right the day after. I went to Humane Balmain, actually, the Balmain Town Hall. Uh, Chris Masters and Fran Kelly held a talk about Chris Masters' new book. Uh, and obviously he was 50% of the duo that, you know, brought brought home the defamation case with Ben Robert Smith, him and Nick McKenzie. And um, interestingly enough, I actually ran into Fran Kelly on the street before the, here in Balmain, before her talk. And I had to offer her directions to the town hall, but it was really extraordinary. I think the majority of the time was devoted to actually talking about what happened in Afghanistan. It wasn't really a media-centered conversation at all. Um, I think I was the youngest person in the audience by about approximately 50 years. Whereas you're the youngest person on the podcast by about 50 years today. (laughs) (laughs) As usual. Uh, The book book was all over the shelves as I was travelling through the airports. Is there a risk that that might get pulled due to the defamation case uh, being launched, do you think? I don't believe so. I mean, this book has been published by Alan Unwin. It's going through its publicity phase right now. Uh, and it's the appeal has been launched, but I personally don't believe there's a chance of the book being pulled. No, I suppose the one thing which maybe helps reduce the risk a bit is because effectively it's a review of the judges' processes rather than a rehearing of all the evidence. There aren't new witnesses to be tainted, so that that would probably reduce the risk. Um, so I I suspect if it was going to vanish, it would have done by now. But um, but yeah, that's always the risk, isn't it? When you when you publish so soon afterwards. Um, and Abe, um, you you also uh, made productive use of your time in Sydney while, while you were over for Humane. You also uh, you also popped in on the ABC, didn't you? Yes, we went to a taping of Gruen, which is fascinating. I've been a long-time listener, first-time caller, and just great to sit in the audience. Russell Howcroft was back. He hadn't been uh, been on the panel for the whole season, so he was back in fine form. Todd Sampson, always full of witty insights. Uh, yeah, it was it was fascinating just watching great the great minds dissect. Uh, actually, they were talking a lot about the Barbie movie and all the marketing around that, and how Mattel owned Pink. Uh, the colour, and it was just interesting to hear their thoughts around that. Mattel and Gaviscon. <laughs> That's exactly right, exactly right. And then, of course, there's the, I, I forget the name, but is it just called The Pitch, where the two agencies go head-to-head? It is The Pitch, and we were quite proud because uh, we're offering the agencies that are involved in The Pitch, if they need any voiceover work, we're happy to do it for them. And so we were winners and losers on the same night because we had voiceovers used on both uh, pitch commercials, so it was good. We won whichever way we looked at it, so really happy to see that. Well, as we've been discussing, it was a big day on Wednesday for Unmade with the Humane Conference. Now, before we cover off this week's Start the Week stories, we were all in the room at Humane. Um, Abe, you, you, you were actually on stage. It was a busy week for you. What did you present? 
I presented an idea that I've been working on only for a couple of months called Dashi, and essentially it's workflow management with some really cool tools built in to help streamline efficiency for broadcasters to produce commercial content at scale. So it was an honor to be there, but interested to hear kind of your highlights, Tim and Sedja from from the day. What what stood out to you both? Maybe Sedja, you go first. What what stood out to you? Look, I personally find the discussion of regulation to be the most compelling element of AI. And there were some pretty sharp perspectives on the matter in the great debate. You sort of got the sense in the day that everyone felt there was a sort of underlying moral quandary amidst all of this incredible innovation. And that was really put to the forefront during the debate. And it was, I believe it was Trey Horton who mentioned that a tsunami of legal and ethical ramifications were waiting for businesses or agencies who are applying AI to their operations. And Look, there were quite a number of Pollyannas too, but the consensus seemed to be that, you know, the lower rungs of staff and agencies and so forth were probably going to be impacted the hardest. And there was this sort of pervading sense of guilt and, yeah, no one could really make up their mind about whether it was overwhelmingly positive or negative. Guilt and excitement in the same breath, it seemed. Yeah, I, I, I think I'd build on on those two points that Sergio makes. Firstly, there is this real sense there are big job impacts coming. You know, I, I you know, reported while I was over in the UK on Martin Sorrell predicting quarter of a million jobs to go out of uh, media agencies. Um, there is this sense it's already happening. You know, there are, I've heard anecdotes just in recent days about designers who are no longer able to work as designers because the or illustrators because the work has suddenly dried up. Um, so that that that's real, and there's a real sense that the industry isn't grappling with that yet. So that um, that 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 was the first thing, and then the other thing, which again builds up on Sedge's point, is there is this quandary of risk appetite. On the one hand, you can be super cautious. You can not do anything because there is this concern that if you, you know, you you produce work out of open AI, then maybe it's using um, uh, copyrighted work to actually produce it in the first place, which could come back and bite you as a brand. So that's one side of it. But on the other, it's how deeply some brands are already going in using AI in every aspect of, you know, handling and processing data in creating content in building their media plans and understanding their media mix modeling so there is this risk of also being left behind you know so it's balanced do you want do you want to avoid the risk of legal ramifications or do you want to avoid the risk of being left behind Later in the podcast, we'll bring you some content from one of the great sessions at Humane. We'll be hearing from a panel discussing the applications of AI in making content and creative assets for clients. And up next, Tim and Sedja look at today's breaking stories. Unmade. So Sedja, where should we start this week? Let's start with this morning's The Australian the headline is ABC management working on a report to urgently overhaul its troubled radio stations. This is obviously about their radio arm. And Tim, this is an ongoing story. So what's this week's development? Yeah, so this is a story from Nick Tabakoff, uh, the associate editor at The Australian, and Sophie Ellsworth, who, who's a media writer. And uh, th- th- this isn't completely new information. We already knew that there'd been this big report commissioned by the board into audiences for ABC Radio. Um, what the Oz flags today is after last week's ratings, which saw numbers fall for several of the city-based stations, including uh, ABC Sydney, starting to um, look for some tangibles of which the key thing, according to this report, seems to be about providing more production support in that kind of key breakfast slot for these stations. But also asking that question is just, is there enough local news now to actually deliver that content? Now, of course, some of this is just inherited from um, the decision about three years ago now to get rid of the 7.45 a.m. news bulletin, which was networked across uh, across the whole country to the to the local stations. And, uh, and, and that changed listening habits as as people, you know, did warn at the time. The author's also quoted a source who has said 
in a commercial environment, if radio ratings had dropped to where they are, somebody would be fired. Do you reckon that's fair? Look, the the word firing obviously is quite heavy, but yeah, look, I think probably you know certainly you know we've on unmade we've been writing about um, the ABC's problems in ratings because you know this is not just a story of young people leaving radio; it's young people in leaving radio when it's the ABC in particular, and also people across the board. So it's doing comparatively worse than its commercial competitors. So yeah, the the point I've made previously is if it was commercial, something would have changed by now. Now, yes, that might have been people being fired or moved on to bring in changes of, of leadership or changes of content, but certainly it wouldn't have been allowed to drift for as long as that. I see. And on the same topic of the ABC, the AFR has been looking at their TV viewing patterns. What have they found? Yeah, this one's fascinating. It's kind of one of those stories which you think, gosh, I wish I'd thought to look into that. So uh, Mark Stefano or Stefano um, on the AFR um, has been digging into um, the patterns of viewing of the ABC's news bulletins, TV news bulletins in particular. And there's a couple of really surprising stats. The For me, the big one is that less than 8% of viewers of that 7pm bulletin are under 40. Let me just say that again. 8% of viewers under 40. Um, rather meanly, they quote somebody anonymous as saying, it's not the ABC, it's the grey BC, um, which, um, which, which kind of, it, it, it does point to that thing of you you've got to have some sort of um license i suppose social license to get that billion dollars or so of public money to run an organization and it needs to be watched by the wide and listened to by the wider public to justify that spend upset mm, is a pretty extraordinary number and on that note the persistence of the older demographic being their dominant audience has obviously been cited like as the reason that news chief Justin Stevens made several positions redundant, including that of the political editor Andrew Probin. Tim, do you think that investing heavily in a raft of social media producers who are very adept at TikTok is going to help rescue the ABC? Hey, look, I mean, that sounds like a tactic rather than a strategy. Um, and I think that's the main issue is we've had this um, slightly... <sighs> I'm not sure complacent is the is the best word for it, but since um, uh, Michelle Guthrie was ousted as managing director, uh, replaced by David Anderson, um, who was more of a sort of insider character, the priorities seem to be very much stabilising everything rather than addressing those issues, which which were already noticeable even then of of audiences drifting away from the ABC. Um, so. Uh, look, I mean, in itself, hiring a social media producer who's good at TikTok, no, clearly that's not the solution. But if that's a symptom of a change in attitude to finding audiences where audiences are, then, you know, that's a small step in the right direction. Uh, On the note of Michelle Guthrie, she's obviously the former ABC boss. She's been talking to The Australian today. What's she been saying? Yeah, so um, it was already in the public domain that she'd been announced as the chair of Disrupt Radio. Now, I think this would be non-executive chair. Um, She seems to do a lot of kind of non-exec board roles. So Disrupt Radio um, was the thing we talked about in our podcast last week when we we spoke to uh, Rob Schwetz, their um, commercial chief, in a, a kind of... I guess I wasn't particularly convinced about, you know, the story and the business model in that interview. Um, but yeah, they've, 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 this is the first publicity I can remember Michelle or recall Michelle Guthrie doing. I, I'd actually begun to wonder if she was actually coming on board or not. I, funnily enough, I did send a, um, a request for comment to Disrupt Radio last week asking if she was still joining and we didn't get a reply at all. But lo and behold, she's now doing publicity, saying that she is. Um, and I suppose, yeah, the, 
one question for me on um, Michelle Guth- Guthrie as Joseph is exactly what is she bringing to the bringing to this one? You know, as I say, she is doing a few sort of um, uh, directorships these days, but um, she's never worked in radio. Um, you know that. The domain expertise, you know, as we heard in the Rob Schwetz interview, he's never worked in radio. So really an awful lot is on the shoulders of Benjamin Roberts as the um, CEO slash founder, who I guess was in a sort of uh, mid-level management role in Perth when he worked for um, uh, what was then Macquarie Media. Um, So... uh, you know, there's a little bit more radio expertise on the production side of things. You know, they've got, um, you know, for instance, um, Libby Gordon in The Breakfast Show and, you know, kind of reasonably well-known former ABC presenter and Jules Lund, who used to present on um, Today FM, um, doing the kind of lunchtime slot. But, um, but yeah, again, um, look, you know, Michelle Guthrie was, you know, certainly not – well, by no measure a successful boss of the ABC, given that she was fired after not very long. Um, so the best of luck to her, and hopefully she, she has more success in this broadcasting venture. Well, let's move on now to the Women's World Cup, which starts this week. And just in this morning, Seven and Optus have shared their final list of sponsors. Who are they, Tim? Yeah, that press release came in this morning, just before we were going to record. So, um, again, this this was already known, although I must admit, it kind of, I, I it kind of, um, uh, I suppose I'd, I'd kind of forgotten it actually when I wrote our piece on uh, the uh, the Women's World Cup, which we published on Friday. That Seven Network and Optus Sport are jointly selling the, um, the 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 advertising and sponsorship rights around this, which um, which sort of makes sense because um, the free to air matches, which um, which Seven are showing, which include all of the Matildas games, um, was a sort of sub licensing of the rights from Optus Sport. So. Um, yeah, so those partners are Adidas, Hyundai, Rexona, and Qantas. Those are the those are the, the people who've got the official designation of partners. And then the next level down, labelled sponsors, are Cadbury, Coca Cola, Kia, McDonald's, Visa, and uh, accountancy software platform Zero. So a lot of the kind of usual uh, sporting suspects in then, and you know some quite big names. Yeah, we're obviously very acquainted with the Floptus saga and other recent PR disasters Optus has faced. Do we think that the public is going to get behind the tournament? Yeah, well, let's cover off the Floptus thing first of all, because that is um, referred to in, uh, there's a piece in the AFR this morning in which they chat to uh, Clive Dickens, who's um, the Optus executive who's leading this this whole project. Floptus was um, the previous Men's World Cup of, I think, 2018, where there were technical problems um, since then. You know, I you know, it's a while since I've even heard that phrase. Five years on, I don't think uh, anyone actually seriously doubts that. Um, <laughs> I nearly had an unfortunate double negative there. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't think um, anyone seriously believes that Optus is going to make a mess of the technicalities this time around because. Um, you know they've moved on. They've, they've they've got a lot of experience now. They've actually got. I've been lucky enough to have the tour of the facilities myself, just as the AFR has today, um, uh, over in uh, in Macquarie Park. So they're they're well set up to um, to kind of you know helm the Australian version of this uh, of this broadcast. Um, but yeah, to your point on um, the public getting behind it. Um, that is the million dollar question. In fact, let's call it a billion dollar question. Um, of course, sports football fans will. That that that's hopefully a given. Hopefully, sports fans more generally will. I guess the test for me is it's just that thing of if you're you know popping into the shop in the morning, is the conversation naturally. Are you going to watch the Matildas game tonight? You know, has it hit that public consciousness? My my sense is it hasn't, and I really hope it does. You know, and I think if it's one of these things where the Matildas have a good run, then it hopefully has a chance of doing so because because um, you know 
if they have a good run and the country gets behind it, then it can be such a great mood lifter. You know, I, I, you know, as I wrote about on Friday, if you look back at how the British public or the English public got behind the lionesses in the um, uh, 2022 Euros version of the kind of the football championship, so sort of one tier down, and it, 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 you know, it absolutely remade the national mood in the UK. And um, I'd love it if the same thing happens here in Australia. Well, we've got more news in the Australian's media diary today on the launch of new media business, Sire. We've got details of a few more staff. So, first of all, who's joining? Yeah, let's um, let's let and we'll, we'll skim through this one quickly because I, I, I I'm sort of I don't want to burn too too many of my uh, my bridges on this one just because um, we get to um, uh, to share the whole thing on properly on Thursday. So uh, when we have an interview with Chris Jans, who's the boss of Sire for our podcast, but it, but yeah, amongst the names um, which now reach the public domain today, um, I think the ones that. Uh, so the, the the names they mention are Andrew Cornell joining, um, Philip Wen, Anthony Galloway, and Jennifer Duke. Now most of these X nine people, and that was where Chris Jans and David Eisman, um, the two kind of uh, founders of Sire, had um, had previously had previously been. But the ones, yeah, the, a couple of names that really interest me. One is Andrew Cornell, who yes, sort of ex-journo who then moved to i guess what you could call brand funded journalism he he ran the anz blue notes operation so that was probably the best funded corporate newsroom in the in in the country so that's that's a big move back to the pointy end of journalism um so that's an interesting one and then the other one is um jennifer duke who happened to um be uh, guesting on the Fear and Greed uh, podcast over the weekend for their weekend edition, adjudicating the, uh, the, the 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 weekly battle there. And I I, I heard mention that she's actually going to be guesting on that. Um, I remember Jennifer Duke as a very good reporter on the media beat. She later moved to the economics beat, which I I think is what she's going to be doing for for Sire and their their first publication, which is called Capital Brief. But um, but yeah, I you know I remember back when I was on Mumbrella, she, she was a she was a good operator and broke a few stories. So um, so yeah, so so just four hires revealed there. Um, a bit more detail we will be revealing on Thursday in our conversation with with Chris Jans. So I don't want to say uh, to give away too much on that just yet. But um, but yeah, there's some uh, there's there's some interesting nuance to the business model which hasn't yet come out, but will come out on Thursday. In Adland, there's a new announcement this morning from Clemager BBDO. They've made their first management hires since Danny Basil took the reins as CEO. Again, Tim, who's joined? Yeah, that's right. So, yes, we are. Um, there was a blizzard of announcements and press releases coming in just before we recorded. So, um, so Clemager BBDO, um, one of the great agency names in Australia, if not right now, maybe not one of the great agencies, um, although one hopes they re- re- recover that crown again. But they've appointed their first chief growth officer, Anita Zanesco. Um, They've also announced a couple of other um, uh, new management hires. So, so these are the, these are hires made by CEO Danny Basil, who's fairly newly arrived herself. So, Georgie Winton and Anita Deutsch Burley are both joining. So, uh, Anita Zanesco coming across from um, Darren Woolley's Trinity P three, and I. Um, uh, yeah, Darren. Darren was unwell last week because he wasn't able to speak at um, Humane. So, Darren, I hope you're feeling better now. Um, but yeah, that was just an aside. Um, so, yes, yeah, so Anita Zanessa coming across from um, Trinity P3, um, taking charge of growth strategy. Now, I think what that means very, very broadly, and I know this, the, you know, it's more than this, but new business, I'm sure, is one of the key, um, you know, the the the, the key elements of that the, the press release says new clients and capabilities um 
so that's that that's one of the moves um and then George, that that that's um over in uh, in melbourne and then um georgie winton will be based in the sydney office so um you know new moves across the um two offices i see how does this change the gender balance of the agency management yeah look it does a bit because you know one, one of the things that could have been said over the years of Clems, not not exclusively, because you know for a while um, uh, they, they they had a CEO in Gale while, um, but overall the, the the gender balance was quite blokey at Clems, and that was one of the criticisms over the years of creative agencies that you'd have more people called Davo in management roles than you would women in total. So just for a change, today's announcement has more people called Anita joining the Clems team than men. Unmade. One standout session of last week's Humane conference was Art and Science AI for Content, where we had a panel discuss use cases and the diverse applications of AI in creating all manner of content. You're about to hear from Ivy Hornibrook, product lead at Canva, Emile Radmeyer of Vandal, Mary Pruell of Red Agency, and Rick Durham from Meltwater. Emile kicked off by discussing the role of generative AI in creating true-to-life, authentic, creative assets for clients. Elle Green of the MarTech was the moderator. Obviously, generative AI is and will impact our work quite a lot, and um, rather than being afraid of the toolset, we've really harnessed the toolset of generative AI um, in a recent project that we have been commissioned. Now, just to give you a little bit of context of the project, it is for a commercial lobby development for Lentlease. Lentlease is a developer, and they put a giant digital TV screen in this commercial lobby for you. It's about probably... 10 times bigger than the screen that you see here. Now that's obviously a challenge when it comes to generative AI. When we see generative AI, it's usually a tiny little image or it's a tiny little low quality video. So we really challenged ourselves to live up, live up to the brief that um, the client gave us, which was to use a new technology to create digital art in this lobby foyer. The client really wanted to pay homage to Australian nature and Australian culture. So the um, creative proposition that we made to the client was to showcase six seasons of Australia, the, the kind of six seasons that Australia go through in the, the, natural, limit, the na- natural rhythms of our landscape and generate content um, based on these rhythms in Australia. What we had to do is we obviously then had to train the model, the AI model, to be able to generate this Australian landscape. Now, generative AI can be very, very freaky, and our client did not want freaky, and we had to train it quite a bit. I've got a tiny little reel here that I just want to show you guys as part of that um, training sequence that we it's called um, AI Atelier by Vandal. It will show 30 seconds of kind of the training process that we've gone through in order to train the artist, the generative artist, um, Wattle. And here it is. And the next couple of seconds will just show you, if we can just keep playing that video, please. You can see some of the artwork that was generated. Keep in mind, it is about 10 times the scale of this, but this is our artwork for for berries and feathers. Um, It was artwork number five, feathers and flowers. Artwork number three was storm, the leaves, the raindrops of the storm. When you think of a commercial lobby, you don't want to walk in every day and see exactly the same thing. So we ended up having to generate longer than a feature film uh, length of generative AI. So it was about two and a half hours of generative AI at a 4K resolution, um, which was really challenging to do. But that was our first step into it. And I don't want to hog the mic any longer. So I'm going to pass over to Mary to take over from here. Thank you. Thank you. That's very beautiful content. Um, yes. 
My name is Mary Prue. I'm co-founder of Bread Agency. Bread is a social media agency, so we do everything from social media strategy through to content production, influencer marketing and strategy and implementation. So generative AI is obviously a big conversation in terms of how we're looking at both the pre-production and working kind of in the back end before any content gets out to clients and then also the outputs of how we're using generative AI with our clients and, and using that across their social media channels or through their strategy as well. When we were tasked to show some examples of the work we're doing, um, I think I can speak a bit more to some of the elements, but wanted to show a fun one that as an agency, a very new agency, so we just launched last year, PR for us is obviously a big push, trying to get the brand awareness out there, get conversations going. So we don't have an office as Bread Agency, but we wanted to ideate around what an office for Bread could look like through AI. So we actually partnered with an architect and worked on Midjourney, through Midjourney, if you want to pull up the images. I think it was a really interesting experience, obviously working through Midjourney, but we did work with someone who had a background in architecture, which we thought was really interesting. And I think we'll, we'll start to talk about this a bit more when it comes to content and creativity and using AI and powering that together. But we went through many, many different iterations and came up with some concepts that we thought reflected a playful sense of what Bread Agency could look like um, once we do get enough budget to create a, an agency office. We may, you may see it or you may not just imagine what a Bread office would look like. It's quite interesting. We're not gonna see it, so that's all good. I will head to Bread Agency LinkedIn and you'll be able to have a, have a look at it there. I, I, we can send it out afterwards, I think, yeah. Perfect. Excellent, I think that ad that was on was a bit scary, whatever that was. Do you see the people's faces? It's us that? later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so hello everyone, my name's Rick. Uh, I'm from a company called Meltwater. I work in our global enterprise solutions team. I think uh, we were talking just a second ago with Elle just around uh, AI coming into vogue in 2023. And it's one of these things that people like me and people like Elle are really excited about because it means we don't have to explain it to people anymore. Um, it means that they understand that things are going on in the background that, uh, that have been going on for a number of years. Uh, now we just get to talk about the outputs and uh, what you can do from it. So Melwater is the, the world's leader in media and social media monitoring and intelligence. Uh, the way we integrate AI has been done for a very long time over the journey. So things like large language models, natural language processing, being able to see different parts of the metadata and why that's important for any particular brand is how we've been establishing the platform over a long period of time. But now being able to integrate some of the things like content prompts, uh, being able to clean up texts that go out to journalists, being able to do large content clustering into, uh, into different groups when there are big issues going on, things like sentiment shifts uh, and content spikes that are coming through, all of these different areas to be able to enable our clients to do the job that they want to do, which is talking to their, to their particular audiences or creating and doing uh, content uh, themselves. So we kind of start at the, the start of the creative process where you're able to analyse a wide set of data uh, and then enable all of the, the clients that use our services to then go and create great things for the audiences to see. Yeah, great, thank you. And uh, definitely a lot of similarities in what we do. So thinking about you know, use cases for content, uh, AI and content creation. So um, I'll take the Dell side of this. If you go onto LinkedIn, I'm sure some of you do, you'll see a lot of thought leadership content on there, real deep techie um, content where you don't know what anyone's talking about. That's probably created by our platform um, and still very much with user input and um, employee input. Same thing, we use prompts to help finesse the output also help them understand what they need to talk about. And I'd love to also hear from some of you guys, like, you know, what are the real specific use cases of AI and content creation? I think one of um, the interesting ones for us is we obviously do a lot of content production. And where we've found AI really helpful is in that pre-production process. So if any of you have ever planned a content shoot before, you know that you need storyboards, you need scamps. There's a lot of work that goes on before you actually get to the shoot date to bring the idea to life, to get the client on board, etc. We've then started using tools like Midjourney, um, Adobe Firefly, 
to actually come up with what the scamps are or to build those storyboards, making it much easier and much more seamless for both us and our clients to get on board with what the idea is and how that's going to come to life, but also through the conversations then we're having with our production partners. So the directors, the videographers, etc. they know exactly what they need to capture in that asset before they get to the shoot. So we've loved kind of you know, the efficiencies that we're finding throughout that process and finding it really helpful to create a stronger output at the end because we're very clear on what we need to achieve before we get to that shoot date. We were talking about this earlier and like, I can't, you know, how many people in this room wish should have had AI or gen AI when we had to create scamps for, pitch, for pitches and things like that? Like, holy moly, this, this is the type of moment when you think AI is amazing. Yeah, it was always, you know, we were always laughing in our studio. The client wants to see it done before you've even started. And um, we would spend endless um, time generating um, photorealistic representations in, in CG and 3D and Photoshop and After Effects, etc. And as part of the pre-production process, we can now really capture a, a mood and a feeling. It, it might not represent the final actors or the final location, but it can capture the essence of the lighting or the essence of a mood in that pre-production process to show the client how it's going to look like before it's finished. It's really interesting hearing from Mary how she uses it in the pre-production process and then a tool like Canva uses it in the production process. And I think that is where generative AI really transcends that um, not transcends, but maybe draw the thread through the creative process that it's, it's, yeah, it's another tool that we as creatives can harness to, to generate content and be creative rather than a tool that takes away the creativity from creatives. Yeah, I think when we think about use cases, because there's just so much we can do with Canva and AI, um, and what we're trying to really do is infuse AI into everything that Canva already is. We're not necessarily transforming the products, but it's what users have always come to Canva for. So you come to Canva to start a design, well, we have magic design to help you inspire and to start your design. You come to Canva to write or to brainstorm, we have magic write. Um, you're looking for an asset in Canva, we have text to image to create those assets. And every part of that design journey, whether it be editing, finessing, polishing, we're looking at what AI has to offer in this space. And even when we imagine all of these possibilities, I think it's always the kind of really unexpected things that we find that our community does in Canva, which, like, who would have thought that Magic Edit would go viral because everyone's creating professional headshots from casual photos and they want to replace some clothing? Um, and that's what people use Magic Edit for. Or we found that in Magic Write, actually, a member of our community told us she's writing poetry with Magic Write. She just doesn't have quite that grasp of English that she wants um, to quite get the tone of voice. So she puts her ideas in there and Magic Write helps her to create that tone and use it as a creative outlet. Um, could never have anticipated use cases like that. I'm, I'm gonna have to jump in here because I think this is a hot topic for everybody, um, is sort of the, you know, the risks um, associated with generative AI around, you know, copyright issues, authenticity. Um, I was literally in a conversation um, on LinkedIn about this, I think, yesterday. I'm ex-LinkedIn, sorry if I've mentioned it twice. I, we can't take the girl out of LinkedIn. Um, but there's, you know, there are, what, what, what are your thoughts around the risks involved in that? There's so many, there was, if we, if we go back, you know, a few months ago, there's all these um, platforms coming out, like, you know, zero ChatGPT, ChatGPT zero, whichever way you want to say it, that you're looking about how you could use ChatGPT in content. And then there's obviously now platforms that talk about um, how to undo that. So, like, mask the, the ChatGPT. So what are the thoughts and risks around actually people's creativity, how much you can use um, AI, generative AI and AI in content creation. I can say something. Um, remember that generative AI only generates what it's been trained with. Now, you can train it with copyrighted material and we've, we've heard a lot of, or you would have seen some articles in the news of people claiming their copyright has been infringed or you can train it with your own content. The generative AI, what the AI generates is only as good as the content that it has been trained with. And it doesn't need to be 
copyrighted. Um, you know, it's really interesting. We, we went through this whole, everything was about the metaverse last year. and was metaverse this and metaverse that and NFT this and NFT that and $69 billion for an NFT. But really, if you think about it, an NFT is just a digital contract to authenticate that digital image or digital song. And I think that's really how we'll be able to start authenticating content that is real or generative. If I create something, I can authenticate that with an NFT, but generative AI cannot. And I think in the future we'll see much more use cases of NFTs to be able to authenticate our content or our copyrighted material that will then really add value to original creations rather than artificially generated creations. Yeah, exactly. And I think that obviously within the social space and in our conversations with clients, we are very careful about how we're approaching using generative AI and what that looks like. Is it going on their channels or who gets the credit and how transparent you're being around that? Um, so I think the conversations are continuing to evolve and I, there's going to be a lot of learning um, that we all kind of need to... I think we, it's been said before, you almost need to take it with a grain of salt and make sure that you're not just jumping in without doing your research and kind of understanding the area that you're playing in, but making sure you are educating yourself on what the risks are and what you need to do to make sure that you're covered. I'd say in, a, in addition to that, the understanding the data that you're using uh, within any model is really important as well. So do you have the rights to the data that you're getting it to analyse? Uh, do you have the right type of agreements in place for that to be utilised on your behalf for your product as well. So I think everyone would have seen over last week, uh, Twitter basically reduced all of the uh, view counts that could be done because OpenAI were training all of their models on the entire firehose for Twitter. So clearly that's a use of not necessarily copyrighted data that they have, but it is a use of their data to train another platform in order for their own benefit. So ensuring that you have the right licenses to do it is, is really important. Um, the other thing I'd note as well is that uh, we have seen that uh, some people try and put like a lot of confidential data into these models to get, to get some answers on, on what they need. Just, I'm sure all of the audience is exactly the same, but just don't, just don't do that. Like, don't, don't put like your tax return in there and ask, oh, how much can I get back? Um, or something along those lines. Make sure you're just using it in a way that is for a purpose that is not confidential. Uh. I think probably what we'd add is that um, it's something we're very aware of in Canva. Um, and one of the, um, I think one of the real privileges and one of the reasons I love working at Canva is we're a value, very values-driven company. Um, so we go in with all of our product development thinking about these issues, debating them. I think, as we said, we're all learning in this space, um, but to go in there and actually think about how do we bring our creator community, who, which is one of our biggest assets at Canva, how do we bring them along the journey? How do we co-create a future um, which both includes generative AI, but also that the, that creators can see the value of human creativity and they want to be part of that future. How do we make sure that um, we fairly remunerate for the use of that intellectual property as well? Um, I wouldn't say we have all of the answers, but we're always thinking about it with every new product development that we do. Yeah, great, thank you. Um, so, you know, for example, we've built our platform that you cannot use it without human input um, right from the get-go. And I think I was telling the story earlier that a, a partner of ours said, oh, it's okay, but it's not that good. I asked it to write a blog for me and it couldn't. I was like, well, if you want to do that, put it into ChatGPT and then hope for the best on this discussion. And we've actually built, I think, similar to saying about Canva is the fact that you relies on the input of the human um, to actually create a decent output. It just helps augment the output, the process, the bits that the human creativity, whether it's a language limitation, might be. What are some of the sort of the limitations that, of AI that you guys are finding in um, content creation? I can start with that. Um, just on what we see with our client base, and <clears throat> the majority of the the questions that we get are around what does this content mean, or what, how does this impact our reputation, or how do we change our reputation, or how are we looking in ESG? 
Like those type of things that AI is not going to be able to tell you uh, without a human overlay. Um, being able to detect things like sarcasm or Australian colloquialisms or different areas that the media write about or is said on social media is impossible for an AI to actually know um, from the get-go and it will always need human intervention to understand the outputs that are coming from it. Um, so we always make sure that there's a, there's a two-pronged approach. Usually the, usually the uh, analysis uh, of a large set of data is done via the AI but then that human intervention has to come after before it's sent out as a final output because there's clearly going to be mistakes in there. Um, even if you go on and do some things yourself and you ask questions, if you know the, the actual, uh, if you know the, the thing you're looking at inside and out and you see the answer that comes from AI, you, you think to yourself, hang on a minute, that's not quite correct, even though it spits it out really quickly and it's using all of the data that it's got you know in your head that, hang on, that's not quite right. So I, I, I still think that there's a massive place for the, for the human element to, to any outputs that come from it. I think also when it comes to content, and someone mentioned this in one of the previous discussions, but you need to understand what makes a good social media video or you need to understand what makes good content. So when even you are prompting it and you're getting the outputs, you can decipher, well, uh, you know, the length or where the hook comes in or any of those elements aren't necessarily right. So I think that overlay of understanding what works, what works for your particular audience as well, um, because that can, you know, range via platform, etc. So having that understanding and overlaying that when you're using AI to create content. And I think if anyone has used any of like a mid-journey, for example, you can see how many iterations you need to go through to get to something that is half decent most of the time. Um, so you really do need that human element of understanding the category or the type of content you're trying to create, making sure those prompts are right. But um, I think, you know, elevating, it help, helping, allowing AI to help you elevate what you maybe couldn't do before. I think probably we have a slightly different perspective um, with Canva in that one of the things that we think that AI will be very good at is um, codifying what good design is. And if you think about Canva's mission being to empower users to design, to empower the world to be better designers than they would be themselves, um, to, to be able to achieve things that they might not have the skill to do, then being able to codify those good design rules is, is really important and is, is a lot of what the value that people get from Canva. But when you think about really great design, it intentionally breaks rules. It touches a nerve. It understands human psyche. And I think that is a limitation that, that AI won't be there without human collaboration. Um, that's going to be the realm of like on trend. How do we, how do we make things that are truly original and truly novel? Um, that is always going to be the realm of human creativity. Yeah, I, I might flip this one around and rather than the limitations um, speak about the possibilities of generative AI. Um, I just mentioned before, I, as you do, I was trawling the dark web with my illegal Thor internet browser <laughs> for copyrighted um, artificial intelligent content and I uncovered a, a musical track by Kanye West now basically all it is, is you take all the Kanye West songs that's ever been generated and you train your model with the style of lyrics, the way of rapping, the musical crescendos, etc, etc. And out came a fantastic new Kanye West song. Now I'm not a particular fan of Kanye West, but it sounded like him, it rapped like him, the musical instruments was like him, so there was a new track by an artist. Now take that forward to maybe an artist that is deceased, for example, uh, Michael Jackson. Why can't the Michael Jackson Trust create a new song and make Michael Jackson release a new song? Why can't these artists that we have enjoyed for so many years keep on living and keep on generating? I mean, after all, if I can hear it, it's real and it's his voice and it's his lyrics and it's his experiences. So I think there's a real possibility of that uncanny value of the possibility of creating new content from people that have not, who have um, since passed away or, or, or seeing new material of artists. Yeah, it's an interesting space. I was going to say, I think a good example of that is Grimes as an artist has actually allowed her voice to be used from AI. She just wants 
a 50% cut of any profit that's made, which is really interesting. I think we will kind of see which artists or which creatives allow their work, their thoughts, their voices, their image to be used and which don't and kind of how that will ex you know, expedite the creation that's made around the different art categories. And there was a supermodel. I can't remember who the model was, but there was a female model who has make or is making available her digital double so that she can model or not get out of bed for more than a hundred thousand. <laughs> I think it was a hundred million. But uh, I, th I find that really interesting because in the good old days we would say, ah, oh, that artist has sold out because they're now on a TV commercial. So I wonder if that will be the new sellout where artists sell their content to be generated rather than it always being authentic human generated content. Well, I think now that we're all suitably terrified about how we're going to exist, um, I'd like to just one sort of end on, a, on a, the question around you know, how we then value creativity. So as marketers or agencies, in-house, external, um, if we're going to be moving away from charging um, for our time to charging for our value, what does that look like? I'm really glad I don't have to answer this. That's a conversation. As someone who's just started a new agency, the conversation around how we charge is very topical and something I hate, you know, well, I hate doing my timesheet, so I've hated charging on the hour um, and I've worked in agencies since I started. But I think what will be interesting is, and there is always this conversation around how you kind of, especially within the agency-client relationship, what value looks like. So as, you know, AI may help processes or timelines shrink, what is the actual output? And maybe that is a redefining what our KPIs, our metrics of success look like in that client-agency relationship. And it's not on time, but it's how much value we can add and the impact that that has on the business, the impact that has on sales, all of the conversations we kind of talk about, but haven't actually you know, integrated into our costing models and agency-client relationships, this might help push that forward. I think yeah, just in addition to that as well, I th uh, the, the people that are able to, to have the best output would be the ones that are most desirable because everyone's going to have access to very similar tools along the journey, but it's, it's more the people that can understand what the client really needs uh, and what the output uh, desired is and, and actually executing on that. So it's going to become a lot more around what the outcome of the, the work was than how long it took to do the work. Um, so the better the work is, the more that you should be able to charge for the quality of your work. So it could potentially be a, an advantage to get more work done quicker and get paid better for it if it's at a quality that's much better than the competition. That's it for today. We'd love to hear what you think at letters at unmade.media. That's letters at unmade.media. Sergio will be back tomorrow with Choose Data, examining the underlying trends of advertising complaints so far in 2023. Don't forget, if you want to support Unmade, you can become a paying member. Go to unmade.media to find out how. Today's podcast was produced with the usual enthusiastic support of Abe's Audio. See you next time. Toodle pip. Unmade. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.